privilege to open up God's word once again as we find ourselves in a series that we've entitled Relentless Joy. And we've been learning through this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church in the city of Philippi, and thus the letter he writes is the letter of Philippians. And the great thing about this letter is that what, what Paul speaks about is the subject of this relentless joy. And what's so powerful about it is that the circumstances that he finds himself living in are far from ideal. He's in prison, He finds himself far away from those he loves and and cares about. He finds himself feeling like ministry has come to a screeching halt. He finds himself behind closed doors instead of open opportunities. And yet what drips in every syllable and every verse of this letter is this idea of relentless joy that can be experienced amidst whatever circumstances that Paul was facing in his day. Now, what that means for us is that you and I, by the power of Jesus Christ, can find that relentless joy in our lives as well. No matter what circumstances you're dealing with, whether it's medical concerns, financial crisis, relational uh, problems, whatever you may be dealing with today, Paul gives us hope and gives you and I hope that no matter what we're dealing with, we can find this joy that God gifts and graces his people. And we've been learning about this joy, and we've been learning about how God has given us this ability to choose joy amidst the obstacles and difficulties of life. But for us to do that, we have to make a choice. Joy is not something that just comes upon us without us knowing it. It is a willful, deliberate decision to choose to go and see our problems through God's eyes and not our own. And what we're learning each and every week is that Paul does this as difficult as it would have been for Paul. He does that and he models for us what joy looks like, what relentless joy looks like in a world that seemingly is falling apart. So how are we to find that joy? Let's turn to the scriptures this morning. We're going to find ourselves in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And I'm going to read through to verse 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you or in the chairs uh, that are in the back, and you can find our passage on page 980, page 980. Here's what Paul says to the Philippians and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to each and every one of us today. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, while others, they preach it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? That's a great question. Amidst difficulties and and hardships, we come to the same place Paul does. What now? What then? Paul says the following. 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and it is such a great honor and privilege, and indeed a blessing to open your word and to turn to your scriptures and to be reminded of awesome truths. We are reminded that in this world we have trouble. We are reminded that we are born to trouble as sparks fly upward, the scripture says. And amidst this world of trouble, amidst this world of hardship, we long for joy. And within ourselves, there's no ability to find that joy, and so we turn to you, our Heavenly Father. We run to you to seek after the joy that only you can provide. And so, Lord, we want to know how do we get this joy. We want to know how we can maintain this joy. We want to know how we can share this joy with our brothers and sisters in Christ and as well as those who are living joyless lives in the world. So teach us from this incredible passage this morning. Teach us your antidote for times of hardship and suffering. And amidst all of that, we might truly find the joy that you provide. We love you, and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to use the beginning of this message to work off of the title. This text is driven from a thesis that, that I've come up with in my study uh, of God's Word, especially with regards to this text. And, and it's in the title. If we can just throw that back up on the, on the screen there. Uh, the gospel is God's, and I'm going to add a, a word there, God's joyful antidote for hardship and suffering. All of us, no doubt, are dealing with hardships and suffering. And there are a myriad of things we can be dealing with. Maybe today you walked in and, and that suffering, that hardship followed you and follows you wherever you go, whether at work or play, whether at home or far away, wherever it is, it goes where you go. It causes you not to be able to sleep. It, it, it changes your eating habits. It, it, it changes even at times your personality and how you relate with others. But I want you to know this morning that the gospel is God's joyful antidote to that hardship and suffering that you're facing. Now let me illustrate that thesis with an illustration that I give with some level of fear and trepidation. One of the most common hardships that I see experienced by a group of people that takes those people to their limits is the journey a woman has with pregnancy. I've not experienced it. I'm not an expert in it. I am a spectator. The closest I've gotten to it is three different occasions with my wife, Amanda, and watching her carry um, to delivery uh, three wonderful boys. And what I have come to realize is that pregnancy is not fun for you ladies. And quite frankly, I stand in awe of what you ladies not only are willing to do, but you're willing to repeat it at times again and again. It starts with uh, the pregnancy pains, 
the changes to the body, uh, things like uh, insomnia, swollen ankles, heartburn, stretch marks, the, the back pain, the baby using your internal organs as a punching bag. All of this is going on, and it's day in, night out, going on, and, and you're, you're, you're enduring it. And I'm always amazed at that, and I was always amazed at Amanda. Everything in her life has changed. It, it revolves around that baby that's growing inside of her, only to think that she's getting to the end of the, uh, of the race, to the finish line, only for things to get exponentially worse. Let me explain, if you've not been a part of this, they start contracting. Now, the way that you measure contractions for a woman is the same way that earthquake specialists monitor tectonic movement in our world, by the Richter scale. Now, my job with each of my children was to tell my wife when the earthquake was about to take place, as if I needed to tell her that. Oh, here comes a big one, and I'm sitting here looking at and it's just flying all over. Oh, it's the big one, like I'm Red Fox from Sanford and Son. And she'd be like, moron, I know it. I feel it. And after hours of painful labor, a delivery takes place. And what I've come to realize with my wife was that at the end of it, when she's completely spent, when all modesty, let's just be honest, has been thrown out the window, when she's experienced the greatest amount of pain, the face I see when she holds that baby is one of immense joy. Wait a minute. You've just gone through a war, Amanda, and, and other ladies of Village Bible Church. How can you find joy amid such hardship and suffering? Now, this is what blows me away. Many of you do it again. I would think that you would hear, and maybe you heard this. I'm very grateful I didn't. Never again, buckaroo. Never again. Okay? We're going to make rules here. But many of you not only had one child, but a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, and some, I will remain nameless, more. Why? Why would you endure such hardship and such suffering? And the answer is, listen, the baby is the joyful antidote to pregnancies, hardships, and suffering. Amen? The culmination is worth the painful journey that it takes to get there. What Paul is going to tell us today is that the baby, if you will, the great culmination at the end of all this pain and sorrow, all this difficulty, all these crises of life, that baby that brings us great joy in the Christian life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's when we hold in our lives 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, when we believe it with all our heart, no matter what difficulty or sorrow you find yourselves going through, it will be made more sweeter because it was worth the journey. Paul says, listen, I'm in prison. And my imprisonment is rough. And he doesn't go into the gross details of it, but people knew, people knew what prison looked like back then. People understood exactly what Paul was enduring. But notice what Paul says in the text at the end. He says, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. How in the world can a man who is chained to an imperial guard, that imperial guard sees everything of Paul, there's no modesty there, Paul's eating the worst of the food, he's being treated probably as bad as anyone in society at that point was being treated, and Paul says, I can find joy. The reason why? Because he had grabbed a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that gospel became his antidote that allowed him to rejoice amidst suffering. Now, we are in the same spot. We're struggling. We're maybe in a prison of some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's a medical prison. Maybe it's a financial prison. Maybe it's a relational prison. Maybe it's a spiritual prison. Maybe it's an emotional prison. Uh, Maybe it's a work prison. Maybe it's a school prison. Whatever it is, we find these imprisonments and we begin to wonder where is the hope. We begin to wonder where is the joy. Paul says this over and over again. Paul was known like his Savior was as a man of sorrows. A man of suffering. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, how we can find joy amidst the struggles. I like what Eugene Peterson says in the message paraphrase. Uh, he says this, so we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times, listen to what he says, are small potatoes. Now, now, right away you're like, okay, is this really a translation? Yeah, it's a, it's a paraphrase of what Paul was saying. You know what Paul says there? For these light and momentary trials or troubles. Wait a minute, Tim. You're going to tell me my financial woes. You're going to tell me my medical concerns. You're going to tell me uh, my relational distress. You're going to tell me what's, what's concerning me today is small potatoes. No, it's not. That would be like me in the delivery room telling Amanda, it shouldn't hurt that bad. It doesn't look that bad. I mean, you're fine. If I was doing it, we, this, this is easy. Guys, never say that. And I would never say that to you. Your problems, your trials, your difficulties are huge. That's why you're so anxious. That's why you worry so much about it. That's why you're losing sleep. These are big things. Paul's imprisonment wasn't a small thing. And the prison you find yourself in today is no small thing. But that's not what Eugene Peterson is paraphrasing. That's not what Paul is saying. Notice he says, these hard times are small potatoes, not period, But he goes on, compared, wait a minute, 
There's something that's going on there. That there's this comparison that those big, big problems remain the same size, but they begin to look smaller as we see something greater come into the picture. So what is it? These problems, these hard times, they're small potatoes to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, and that includes your problems. But there's a day coming when the things you can't see now will last forever. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. The reason why Paul could have joy admits, listen to me, what was going on in his life. Horrific treatment as a prisoner, being locked up and chained 24-7, having people that wanted to destroy him and his reputation, groups of people that wanted him dead. Remember, he was beaten and and, and abused over and over and over again. This is a guy who would stand before kings and rulers only to lose his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, And what he says is, these are but light and momentary troubles. How? The answer is because he stopped looking at his problems alone, but started looking at his problems like this, with the backdrop of glory in heaven behind it. And so what we need to do is when we're dealing with these massive issues and struggles in our life, is to put the backdrop of eternity, the backdrop, listen to me, you know what's going to be gone in heaven? All of your worries, all of your anxieties, all of your fears, all of your problems, all of your difficulties, all of your hardships, all of your suffering. The book of 1 Corinthians says all of that will be swallowed up with the chief of them being death and and glory will say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Death and all of the pains of this world have been swallowed up and in that moment, on that great and glorious day, we will reside with our God. in the presence of our God and there will be no more crying and no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow and the old things that we knew and the old things that drove us crazy they'll all be passed away and on that great and glorious day we will experience life for the first time as it was supposed to be lived. And so what Paul is saying is while here on earth between these two worlds I want you to find joy. I want you to find joy in the difficulties of life. How do we do that, Paul? Paul gives us three things we need to do. The first thing that we need to do that needs to change in us is when the troubles and circumstances and difficulties of life come, we need to look up. We need to look up and we need to recognize God has a master plan. Paul says, I can rejoice not in my problems, Paul isn't saying, oh, yippee, I'm in prison. Oh, yippee, we have no money in the checking account. Oh, yippee, I've got cancer. Or yippee, my marriage is falling apart. Paul is not saying that. What Paul says is, I want to see God do his work. And if it means I've got to suffer a little bit, That's okay because God's going to finish what he started in me and he's confident of that and we need to be confident that whatever God is doing, he's getting us to completion. And you know what completion is? Is residing with him where there is no sorrow, no pain, no distress, no difficulty whatsoever. 
And so what Paul is saying is I rejoice in what's coming. Now, once I rejoice in what is coming, now I can look with God's eyes, not my own, at my problems. Now notice what he says. He says, twice I will rejoice. This is an established position, not a wavering. In fact, he uses the phrase, yes. It's this confirmation I believe this with my heart. What Paul is saying in verse 18 is, I choose joy. I choose it. And if you can't make that decision, listen to me, you will never find joy. It's a deliberate decision Paul makes. So how is he going to do it? He says, I'm going to choose joy, and what I'm going to do is take my eyes off of my problems, the woe is me, And I'm going to look up, and I'm going to start to see all that God is doing. Now, notice what he says about what God is doing. He says, I want you to know, brothers, verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, from an earthly perspective, what Paul would have write is, I want you to know, brothers, that what has really happened to me, it's terrible. It's horrific. It's the worst thing. I can't even begin to tell you how bad my life is. And he could have listed for the next three and a half chapters all of the terrible things that happened. But he's not writing from his perspective. He's writing from the Lord's perspective. And he says, what has happened to me has served, really served, to advance the gospel. That word advance is an important word. It is the Greek word uh, prokepi. Prokepi is is how you would say it. Prokepi. And it's an interesting word. Prokopi was a word that was used uh, by the military. And the military, if you were to describe this word prokopi, it would be an army that um, is advancing, but all the while having to work through obstacles to get from point A to point B. And so maybe they've got to tear down trees and forests to move their heavy equipment through. Maybe they've got to build bridges over rivers so that they can get their armies across. Uh, Maybe it's that uh, they've got to deal with all manner of skirmishes along the way. And so there's obstacles at every point in the journey. Uh, But one thing is true, they continue to advance on. And what Paul is saying is, is what God is doing in my life is he's taking the obstacles, and he's using the obstacles as a way for us to advance from point A to point B. Now, that's an important thing for us as Christians to recognize, that what God is doing when trials and tribulations come is what he's wanting us to do is advance amidst obstacles. And that grows an army, that strengthens an army. It tells the enemy that there's nothing in the world that can stop their advancement, so it brings fear to the enemy. Wait a minute, they cleared a forest? Wait a minute, they, they endured hard circumstances, difficult climate conditions, and they still got here? You better believe the enemy's going to be filled with fear and dread. And what Paul says is, God is advancing amidst my troubles, Now, how does he see the gospel advancing? Write these two things down. I didn't put them in the outline. But the first thing that we see is that the gospel was advancing through the witnessing of the soldiers. Notice the text says, 
He says, I want you to know this, that's really advancing the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the imperial, the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul says, I'm in prison, and I find myself chained to a soldier, and, and, and instead of just sitting there bemoaning the troubles that I have, I have got an opportunity. Now you learn this in your small group. We need to see from God's perspective that our obstacles are God's opportunities. And so here's Paul, and he's in this prison cell, and he's chained, and different commentators say that uh, they, they seem to agree that this chain was no longer than a couple feet to maybe four feet in length. And so that guy went with you wherever you went. That guy was with you for the entirety of his shift, and whether there were three eight-hour shifts over the 24 period of time, or two 12-hour shifts, whatever it was, Paul goes, opportunity. That guy is chained to me. He can't go anywhere. He's a captive audience. And so what does he begin to do? Well, we're not told what he does, but we can look at other things that he did during imprisonment. Number one, we know in Acts chapter 16, in maybe one of the same prison cells, uh, we learn that him and Silas, they praise God and they pray. And so imagine you're the imperial guard and you're watching this prisoner and you've been around lots of prisoners and usually the prisoners um, are brutes. Usually they're, they're complaining about all of the um, bad things that have happened to them. And here you've got this guy next to you and he's saying, hey, how can I pray for you to my God? What concerns you? What, 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 what's bothering you? What are the questions about life that you have? And and he begins to tell them about Jesus. I would also say that I'm going to imagine Paul being the righteous man that he is, that he, like Joseph, when Joseph was incarcerated for almost 13 years, that Paul was a model prisoner. And, and what we see is that the whole imperial guard is married aware of this. Now that phrase, imperial guard, uh, literally it comes from this descriptive word in the Greek that literally they were the emperor's bodyguards. They were the secret service. That's who's watching Paul. Now we know from Romans 16 that not only does the whole imperial guard hear of what's going on, but it's through the imprisonments of Paul that at the end of Paul's life there are even members of Caesar's household who become a part of God's people. And so it's effective, and it's, and, it's, and it's creating opportunities. Now, here's the teaching point. Do you know, maybe you don't, that people are chained to you every day? Did you know you're chained to the people you go to work with? Y'all got to be there, right? You know you're chained to the people you go to school with? Do you know, and maybe some will amen this, you know you're chained to the people in your family? Do you know you're chained to your neighbor, to your community? What I mean by that is we're bound by circumstances to live life together. And what Paul is teaching us is don't look at this as a prison sentence. 
Listen, don't look at your job as a prison. Don't look at school like it's a prison. Don't look at your family life like it's a prison. And, and what I mean by that is not, it's not, it's not uh, hard to, to view it differently when things are good, but I'm talking about when schools feels like a prison and work feels like a prison and your marriage feels like a prison and your family feels like a prison. In those moments, you, like Paul, need to be able to look and say, how can I bless the guy that's chained next to me? How can I share Christ? How can I advance the gospel to those who are near me? How can I make their life in this prison a little brighter because they lived it next to me? I'll tell you, you go to school with that mindset, you go to work with that mindset, you go into that, uh, your family or your neighborhood with that mindset, you'll advance the gospel. But what we do, and listen, you're not doing it now, but you'll do it about 6.30 tomorrow morning, we gotta go back to that prison. And you walk in like the rest of the people, and you're angry, and you're bitter, and you're upset, the weekend didn't go as long as you wanted it to, and you don't bring people joy. Paul says, my prison is an opportunity to speak to those closest to me. It allowed him to witness to the soldiers. Number two, very quickly, it allowed him to write the scriptures. So we have witness to the soldiers, and then we have to write the scriptures. Four of Paul's writings were prison letters. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and the book of Philemon. And God would use his prison time to write those letters. And in those letters, it validates, listen to me, it validated Paul's message because surely it would be easy to write about God, to write about Christian living and and all the things that Paul writes about when everything's going well, right? It becomes all the more validating that Paul is experiencing incredible hardships and he writes Such beautiful words inspired by the Holy Spirit to change people's lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so God uses that prison to reorient and create opportunities for Paul to serve in ways that maybe he wouldn't have had he been free. Have you ever thought that the trial you're dealing with right now might be repositioning you to do some things that you never would have done without that trial or tribulation? That God may be moving you or allowing you, and maybe what it is is he's creating in you a compassion and empathy for those who are going through similar struggles. Paul used the prison to witness, God used the prison in Paul's life for Paul to witness to the soldiers, and to write the scriptures. What's God calling you and I to this morning? Number two, we see that what God is doing amidst this struggle isn't something that he wants Paul to keep to himself, but he wants us to look up, and then he wants to let others know what's going on. And the reason why he wants others to know what's going on in Paul's life is that's how God is going to use this experience to motivate people. Verse 14, he says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now that comes on the heels of the beginning of verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. 
Now, right away, I want you to understand what Paul could have done is he could have started and said, I want you to know what's happened to me, and with incredible dysfunction, poured out every problem, every issue, and magnify it so that the hearers or the readers of Philippians would put their hands on their face and go, oh my, that's horrific. And there's a part of us that wants, when we share our story of the trial, for people to do that. Oh my. I will tell you that does you no good. And usually what that is, is it's a selfish response, and I get why we do it, and I've done it before, is because we want people to know how bad we have it. There's a phrase that we use, misery enjoys company. I want to bring you into my misery. And if you're not miserable with me, I'm going to keep telling you how bad my misery is so that you can join me in it. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is not shocking them with every difficulty and every painful situation he finds himself in. He says, I want you to know in a very functional way what's going on And I'm going to limit all the dirty details of the struggles of my life because what I really want to focus on is how it can be used for the good. That is not how we talk about our problems here in America in the 21st century. Because we're so self-centered, we're worried about ourselves, it's about us, it's about us, and so we're dealing with a trial, and that's what we lead with, and that's what we end with, and, and the person can't get a word in edgewise. But notice what Paul says, I want you to know what's happening in my life, and the reason why I want you to know is, number one, write this down, I want to encourage you. He wants to encourage the people. And the way that he encourages them is here is Paul, big hitter. This is the guy that saw the risen Savior and Lord. This is the guy that was called by God himself to take the gospel to kings and rulers. He is the one who was called an apostle of, a, of in essence, an unnatural birth, that he saw the risen Savior at a time different than the others did when Jesus was here on earth. He's a big name. He's a big spiritual guy. And what it would do for the Philippians was they would read this letter and they would hear Paul's having a hard time and they'd be able to take heart. Why? Because they would be able to say, I'm having a hard time too. And Paul's not the only one. But here's the real truth. I'm not the only one. You see, the devil loves for you to think that you are the only one enduring difficulties and struggles, trials and tribulations. That's what makes your problems so hopeless, and that's what makes you feel so helpless. I am alone in this. Nobody's dealing with these things. I go to Facebook, and everybody is like the REM song, shiny, happy people everywhere. And my life is terrible. And the devil says, yeah, because you're the only one who's not filled with joy. You're the only one whose life is falling apart. And you're filled with dread. Paul says, listen to me, you're not the only one. 
And the reason why with function, we tell people that we are hurting, we tell people that we are struggling, we tell people that difficulties have come our way is in doing so that we don't put the spotlight on us and say, look how bad we have it, but we increase that spotlight to say, you're not alone in the fights. So take heart. You're not alone. We're all dealing with something at varied levels and through varied ways. Him sharing would bring encouragement. Second, it would give them an encouragement to endure. It would encourage them to endure. Paul shares his struggle, and the reader of Philippians goes, well, I know Paul's in prison. I know Paul's got enemies. I know Paul's got difficulties. And if Paul can find joy in that, then surely can't I? Surely, can I not find uh, joy in my heart? Can I not see, as Paul did, the, the garbage in my life, that God's got a hand in it? Can I, can't I be like Paul, who's confident that he who began a good work in Paul is the same God who began a good work in me, is faithful to see it to completion? You see, when we speak God in godly ways about our problems, we encourage people they're not alone, and we help people to endure, because they sit there and they look and they say, well, they're making it, and they're struggling with some big issues, so why can't I? I share this a lot, and I share it from multiple uh, perspectives, but uh, it, it is so monumental in my life. Uh, the reason why I believe with all my heart that I can endure whatever the world throws at me is that I watch my parents as a 14-year-old kid endure the loss of their firstborn son. And I watch them not do it badly, but do it to the glory of God. And I remember sitting there going, I want that kind of faith. Now, right away in my 14-year-old mind, when when they're burying their 16-year-old son, uh, my thought is, well, they're just super Christians. But as I've gotten older, what I came to realize, not to take anything away from Bill and Michelle Badal, isn't that they are great, but our God is great. And he takes average, broken down, hurting people, and he says, I began a good work in you, and no matter what comes your way, nothing is going to detour you from getting to the finish line. And so what I've come to realize, not only through my parents, but through the example of all of you in the 18 years I've been leading this church, is that God, by his grace, gifts you and gifts me with the endurance to make it. So when they hear what's going on in Paul's life, they say, if Paul can do it, we can do it as well. That will transform your small group. You'll all walk out with a little pep in your step and you won't even have had to have a cup of coffee. If they can go through that difficulty, then when our problem comes, God is going to be equal to the task. He met them there, and he's going to meet us now. Third thing it does, and this is so practical, Paul shares his problem, and the Philippians hear it. Paul's got his problem. The Philippians have got their problem. I'm going to believe, okay, that Paul probably has got the biggest of the problems the Philippians were facing. Okay? And by Paul declaring what's going on in his life in a modest and God honoring way, 
what it told the Philippians with their smaller problems, not to diminish them, was be careful to not exaggerate what you're going through. And we do that. Something happens in our day, be it a flat tire or a missed appointment or, or a lost customer or a bad test grade, and we come home, and what do we tell our family? I endured the worst day of my life. And, and you, you're all listening to that, and you're like, oh my goodness, what in the world happened? I was driving on Interstate 88, and wouldn't you know it, the right-hand driver's side uh, uh, tire, it, it went flat. Yeah? It's terrible. I was late to work. I got my pants dirty. We exaggerate. It was terrible. It's so difficult. It's so hard. And we are prone to exaggeration. Amen? And we use terms like always and every way and all times and, and all of that. And what Paul tells us is, listen, no matter what you're dealing with, always recognize someone probably has it a whole lot worse off than you do. And so be careful not to make your problems bigger than they are. And that's what Paul is teaching us through this. I'm going to share with you what's going on, but none of this should stop you. That's why you and I need to be honest about our struggles and our troubles, We need to share, not just how difficult things are, and we need to be honest about that, but something that I think is missing within our church and missing in a lot of churches is is the follow-up. It's the next part of the sentence. Yes, we're dealing with hardships and troubles, but God is good. We're dealing with some real difficulties here right now, but can I tell you, God is moving in ways we never thought possible. Has he achieved my problems and taken them away? Nope. But he is showing us how he's advancing the gospel, how he's advancing Christ's likeness in me amidst the obstacles. And so we're in the frying pan still, but you should see the omelet God's making right next door to us. It smells awful good. And that's what God wants to teach us. And how he does that, listen very carefully, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the ministry of the gospel. And and what Paul is going to say here in a moment is he's going to say, listen, it's not about me, it's about the gospel. And so we are altogether prideful and arrogant and selfish, and I include myself in that, when I make my problems all that I can think about. And what, and, and listen, when you do that, you never find joy. You find bitterness, you find resentment, you find anger, you find disappointment. But if I can see that these problems, these massive problems in my life are being used, they're cogs in this machine that God is breaking forth and using to advance his kingdom. Now my eyes aren't on myself. Now I can share these problems, these issues, knowing that God is using it to advance Christ's likeness in someone else's life, to advance the gospel to someone who doesn't know it. And I start approaching my problems with gratefulness and thankfulness in my heart, not bitterness and resentment. And so, 
we need to look up. We need to let others know. And finally, we need to leave the what-ifs in God's hands, knowing that the gospel is the most important priority. So Paul's in prison. Paul could say, I'm rotting here in prison, but he knows better. He's not rotting. He's flourishing in prison. Have you thought about that? That your problem isn't to cause you to rot, but cause you to bloom? That that trial, that trouble, listen to me very, very carefully, that trial or trouble is the fertile ground that's going to make you grow like you've never grown before? You see, we have to stop looking at our incarceration as a problem, but instead look at it as an opportunity for impact. Have you thought that your confinement, this will radically change the way you look at trials, that your confinement is in fact God's assignment for you. God, you put me in this prison. Listen to me very, very carefully. This is so important. It has helped me in, in so many ways. There is not a trial. There is not a trouble. There is not a difficult situation. There is not a hardship that has come into your life, listen to me very carefully, without the express written consent of our Heavenly Father in heaven. And so whatever you're dealing with, God has at some point stamped that approved. If my heavenly father who loves me, who has a plan for my life, who is, uh, has the faithfulness to see me from point A to the finish line, then I can know this isn't going to kill me. This is only going to make me better. When we're able to do that, we can leave all the what-ifs in God's hands. So what are the what-ifs that are dealing with Paul? What if I never get out of here? What if nobody comes to visit me? What if the churches that I've started all fall apart? What if God forsakes me? What if people that I thought were my friends, they turn against me? That's what he talks about here. Those that seemingly I thought were with me are now against me. Notice what he says. There are people who are more confident, they're empowered by my imprisonment. But he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He says that they proclaim, verse 17, Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? You see, there were people that were telling Paul, or were speaking about Paul's imprisonment to others because they saw Paul decreasing and it created an opportunity for them to increase. What, what commentators and scholars tell us is, is what was going on was they were bad-mouthing Paul for the reason for his imprisonment. Paul messed up. Paul sinned and did something against the will and word of God, and that landed him in prison. So we need to stop listening to Paul. Uh, Paul got himself into trouble. And Paul could have been deeply concerned about people and their opinion of him. Paul could have been deeply concerned about their reputation. And, and, and let's just be honest, we live in a world, and, and, and I read more and more, our anxiety has to do a lot with social media and, and the constant 
barrage of asking the question, what are people saying about me? How are they talking about me? And it's, it can be deafening. Recently, and I won't get into all the, the details of it, but recently I was a part of an event where my part uh, was filmed and, and it, it made it all across social media. Uh, it went viral as much as I've ever been viral before, okay? And this is new to me. I'm not real big with social media and all of that. And the thing I was a part of had over a million people see what I did. And there were a bunch of people, the vast majority, hated what I said. And the things, I was laying in bed one night and I was on a Twitter and I'm looking at the thousands of responses to what I had said and I'm looking and this Tim is a fascist. This Tim's a bigot. This Tim is intolerant. Then it got really bad. Tim should die. And I'm looking, and my favorite one, that's the ugliest woman I've ever seen. And then the next line was, well, it's a dude. And I'm flipping through this, and I'm sitting there going, man, there's a lot of hatred in the world. And these people don't even know who I am. They watch a little clip of me, and, 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 and man, this is ugly. And if you live in bondage of others' opinions, listen to me, you will find yourself in prison. You will be in a bondage all the time. And Paul says, listen, people are talking about me. People are abusing my name. People are using me for their own gain. And Paul says, you know what? That's okay. The only thing I care about is that Christ be proclaimed, whether in pretense, meaning whether in evil deeds or in the truth. And so let me, let me close with this. Because very often I'm preaching to you. You need to do this. You need to do that. And, and I always am inviting myself into that. I'm the first person to always be the one I'm preaching to. But let me preach to myself for a moment. And let you be spectators. Okay? When I read this passage, it is an incredible conviction to my heart. Because as a pastor... And you probably don't know this, and it will probably sadden you, but in the world of ministry, it is cutthroat. Ministry is cutthroat. There's a lot of competition in ministry. Their church is bigger than our church. Their church is growing. They did this. They did that. So the same way that you find yourself comparing yourself to your neighbor, what house they're, dri- uh, house they're living in, what car they're driving, uh, what their kids are doing, uh, pastors find themselves tempted to do the very same things. And what begins to happen, and if you are in the pastor world, you know that social media is just as cutthroat amongst pastors as it is regular folk. And so we have one Bible teacher bad-mouthing another Bible teacher, and one person saying this about another person, and one church saying this about another church, and there's all this fighting, and there's all this struggle, and, and what Paul says is it's not about you. It's not about your church. What it's about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God has K 
kept us and graced us from that competitive spirit. And I'm not just saying that now because I've got to preach it, but you've seen it. This morning, Elder Travis McGuire gets up, and what is one of the things he prays for? The other churches in the area. And you hear that often from this place. Our leaders get up, and why do we pray for other churches? Because listen, write this down. They're not our competition. They're our friends. They're our partners. There are 64,000 people who live in our community, the area that we are seeking to reach in this Fox Valley area where the Sugar Grove campus has a unique opportunity to minister to them. Can I tell you, we don't have enough churches We don't have enough churches. There's not enough seats in this place. There's not enough services uh, in the week to be able to service all of those people. And so what do we do? We high-five the brothers and sisters of Christ that are doing it with us. And so here at Village, we praise God and thank God for churches in our community like Christ Community, like Harvest Bible Chapel, like Calvary Church. Do we agree with everything they agree with? No, we're different people. We're different churches. And what we've come to understand, or write this down, we don't compete, but we seek to complete one another. We're in this together. And so you're not going to hear us badmouth. Well, they've got a fog machine. Who cares? Well, they do this and they do that. Who cares? Do they preach Christ? Are they winning souls? That is what we want to be about. And when someone's doing that, listen to me, we will not cut down, we will compliment And quite frankly, humbly speaking, in some ways, and this may mean you may leave, they're doing it better than we are. And God bless them for that. And I'm so thankful for a group of churches in this area. We share resources. We share buildings. Did you know that uh, Christ Community Church, because God has blessed them in so many ways on Wednesday nights, they've got to use some of our rooms to do their ministry? Praise God. If they got to park cars here, we'll be out there parking their cars. Whatever we need to do to allow that ministry to move forward. Why? Because listen, it is not about us. It's not about me. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get that, whether in our times of competition or in our times of crisis, listen very carefully, we will find joy. Because what will come into full view is Jesus. What will come into full view is glory. When we get to heaven, who cares who had the biggest church? When we get to heaven, who cares who had the nicest building? When we get to heaven, who cares who has the best fog machine? We're going to be in the clouds. There'll be fog all around us. And in that moment, we will recognize what needs to be true here in the here and now, and it's all about him. And when we can get our eyes on him, and instead of our trials, and instead of our difficulty, we'll be able to do what the screen says. We'll be able to look up, we'll be able to let others know, and we'll be able to leave the what-ifs in God's hands. Amen?